You're listening to The Tool Belt, a manufacturing podcast focusing on logistics, safety, operations, and breaking industry news. Please enjoy this live conversation from August 3rd with editors from Industry Week, Fleet Owner, and EHS Today. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to Production Pulse, uh, Industry Week's bi-weekly webcast where we talk about uh, news and information affecting the manufacturing world. I'm Robert Schoenberger, Editor-in-Chief of Industry Week, and this week we are going to be having a, an Editor's Roundtable discussing some recent coverage and major stories going on that uh, will, are affecting all of us. So thanks for joining us, and I'm going to start uh, with Scott over here. Scott is the Managing Editor of uh, Fleet Owner, which is uh, owned by Endeavor Business Media, the same owner of uh, Industry Week. And Scott has been covering Yellow, the trucking company that abruptly shut down this week. So Scott, welcome to the program and tell us a little bit about what's going on with Yellow and uh, what, what the impact seems like. Thank you, Robert. Well, the impact of this trucking company potentially going away completely is pretty profound on a lot of different segments of the trucking industry. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Yellow told its union earlier this week, late last week, really, that they were going to uh, shut down and go and file for bankruptcy. But the ir irony of it, of course, is that Yellow itself has not said anything all week. They haven't made their filing. So there's been a lot of behind the scenes in palace intrigue, as I'd like to say, about what actually is going on. Uh, of course, it's a serious situation. There are around 30,000 people that could or will and, and have starting this week to lose their jobs. Uh, a little context, L, uh, Yellow is the third largest LTL, less than truckload carrier in the country. And it's the oldest. It's nearly 100 years old. Um, and we, as I said, we've been waiting for some kind of announcement from the company all week long. Uh, and uh, but since the announcement, this corporate suite at Yellow has basically said nothing publicly. They have been marked by their actions. They've started laying off uh, employees and they've padlocked literally their terminals all over the country. They have about 300 plus terminals all over the country. Uh, and of course, they've cleared their freight, freight channels and uh, that business has gone elsewhere to other LTLs as well as to some of the partial shipping partial shipping companies like UPS and FedEx. Um, UPS, of course, just averted a major strike themselves. Um, the immediate shock on the of yellow, this yellow situation has been on the freight market. Uh, executives during uh, earnings calls this week have said uh, that when they've been reporting their second quarter results that they've picked up large chunks of yellow's business. But they've also been careful to note that they're not feasting off the carcass of the of the company itself and they're and they've also noted that they're charging shippers more than yellow did so uh that's an interesting situation uh there's also a situation with analysts telling us that yellow would likely file for chapter 7 bankruptcy which of course is a complete liquidation of its assets but they have uh they've looked to get some uh, what is called debtor and possession funding from a company called Apollo Global Management. And usually that type of financing is associated with 
a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is not a uh, a disillusion. It is a restructuring or reorganization. So there's a lot of uh, speculation as to whether yellow in some form might survive or might be purchased by uh, one of their many investors or might uh, continue to exist in some form. Um, the history with the union, of course, has been has been uh, has been checkered. Uh, the union they actually sued their union a couple of weeks ago for 130 million dollars in a U.S. district court in Kansas for allegedly interfering in the latest their latest restructuring, which is called One Yellow. Uh, and then after that, they told the union as well that they were going to miss pension and benefits payments for July and August. So the union turned around and, of course, threatened to strike on July by July 24th. But the the fund administrator swooped in and said that they were going to give a 30 day extension on the benefits. So uh, benefits and pen, pension and healthcare benefits were not taken away immediately from Teamsters employees. Yellow has about 22,000 uh, employees who are unionized. Um, so we're seeing some a lot of concern from the manufacturing side again of you know we have so many people dealing with just-in-time inventory and and trying to do they count on yellow coming back or is this uh it sounds like also that a lot of people change their shippers when these uh these concerns start coming to light is this having a big ripple effect throughout the industry well yellow is going to go bankruptcy it's just a question of which form of bankruptcy they choose to follow. All of these indicators seem to say that yellow is still trying to survive in some form or at least trying to make for a more graceful exit than they showed their employees and to the media this week. Um, there's been some interesting investor uh, activity in the past week or so. MFN and Partners which was previously a smaller time investor in yellow, bumped its ownership stake up to 42% this week. And that's the largest slice by far of any other investor in that company. And MFN, of course, is an is a investor in, X, in XPO. So could there be in some involvement by XPO in this? Uh, all this has taken place in the background that uh, since it was announced that yellow would be filing for bankruptcy, their stock has gone up by as much as 25 to 30 percent. Not the typical response the market gives to that kind of news. No, not the typical response at all. And uh, also, so there's cash there. There's also cash from the fact that Yellow also announced that uh, uh, they were going to try to sell their third party logistics arm, which is arguably one of their more successful companies. So again, lots of palace intrigue about what's going to happen with this company. Um, chapter 11, uh, tumultuous history with their union. Could this be a thumb in the nose to the union? I mean, the union president did call the company a deadbeat company, uh, not just one week ago. So there's a lot of implications for the shippers and a lot of implications for jobs in, in, in the trucking industry. There, the union itself pledged some placement services for its members to find uh, trucking jobs elsewhere. Of course, they would prefer that they were other union trucking jobs. And American Trucking Associations also has emerged 
with some with some help and, and placement help for jobs elsewhere in the industry. So there are a lot of ripples from this one, lots of, and we've had this story and the UPS story going on simultaneously. So it's been a busy news week for fleet owner the last two or three weeks. Yeah, thank you, Scott. So it's interesting stuff. Like I said, uh, the, the supply chain is of, of utmost interest to the manufacturing world and seeing these big uh, changes, uh, it's, it's something that's worth, tra worth tracking. Yep, tune in to fleet owner next week. <laughs> Great. And let's uh, shift gears a little bit to uh, Dave Blanchard. Dave uh, is uh, involved with Industry Week. He handles a lot of supply chain material for us. He's also the editor-in-chief over at EHS Today, which is Environmental Health and Safety News. And one of the big things they're following is this uh, massive heat wave we're still seeing throughout the Southwest and the South and uh, triple digits uh, for what, it was it 20 to 34 days in a row in Phoenix? Uh, what are companies doing to keep people uh, functioning and safe in these kinds of environments? All right, so let's put a little perspective on this. Um, it's August and it's gonna be hot. It's in the United States, it's summertime. So I did a little quick research. Um, as far back as I could look into the EHS Today archives on the web, and we go back to 1999 and in 1999 we were running stories about what companies should do uh, to protect their workers during the heat so this is not by any means you know uh, oh this is this just this just kind of happened breaking news story it's hot in the summer uh what is how do i put this uh delicately there seem to be some companies in the in the united states as well as throughout the world who are focused more on productivity than on keeping their workers safe. I realize this is an astonishing uh, story to break right here on your production pulse. But yeah, some companies don't, they, they pay lip service to protecting their workers. Let, let's put it that way. Uh, anyways, what OSHA has been doing, uh, they haven't yet gotten a, a, an, an all, new, all new regulation solidified, but they've been working on it for a couple of years trying to codify and put into practice and then you know start regulating it with inspections and and the regular uh, OSHA procedures to make sure that all employers are protecting their workers. Now that doesn't just mean people working outside in the you know in the summertime. Um, it, it could be somebody working indoors who are wearing really heavy equipment protective equipment, you know, protecting them from, from something falling on their head or, or something like that. But also if it's very, you know, warm in a, in a warehouse or something like that, and you're, you're wearing the proper equipment to protect yourself from something hitting you, uh, are you also putting yourself at risk for just overheating, overexertion if the warehouse isn't properly ventilated or if there's not air conditioning? Um, there's kind of a, a code word for protecting workers. It's called water, rest, shade. So in other words, companies are, are expected to provide their employees uh, cool water, especially if they're working outside or if they're working in, in a hot environment. They're, they're expected to give them, I think it's like five minutes per hour of just break time. You know, if you feel, if you're feeling hot, you should, you should take the initiative to get out of the sun, uh, take the initiative to drink some water, take the initiative just to let your body cool down. Uh, these are all great ideas in theory, in practice. Sometimes 
they don't pan out the way you, you would expect. There was a, a case um, fairly recently, maybe the last year or so, uh, of OSHA issuing citations against the United States Postal Service. So it's one, one, part, one branch of the government kind of coming down on another branch of the government saying that, you know, your, your postal carriers aren't being adequately protected from the heat because a lot of, a lot of postal carriers, even today, are still walking their, their routes rather than in an air-conditioned truck or anything like that. Anyways, the, uh, it turns out that OSHA was, was told to back off a little bit from a, a commission. Uh, the, the reason behind that was that the, maybe it's ironic, but the USPS was in such financial difficulties that it would put an undue hardship on, on the, the Postal Service to follow all of the OSHA regulations to the letter. Uh, well, not, not, they're not even OSHA regulations. They're OSHA suggestions or OSHA um, protections. Some state OSHAs, uh, I'm talking about federal OSHAs, some state OSHAs are a little bit more um, advanced perhaps on that pathway to getting all their, uh, their workers to, to, or all, their, all the companies to protect their workers a little bit better. It's, it's uh, you know, it's one of those issues that it's not, it's not ever going to go away. I, I guess there is the, the impetus behind it right now is, yeah, it's, it seems to be hotter than it had been historically, you know, depending on how you, how you judge how hot it really is, but definitely in the summertime and things, things get hot. The one kind of a new thing, at, at least in terms of media perspective, but also uh, just public perception are all these wildfires. Uh, I mean, I, I live in the Midwest, as, as do many of us on this call. Uh, you know, you just look outside many times this summer, it's just hazy. It's kind of, you know, we've seen pictures of, of New York City being orange because its skies are just clouded over with um, with wildfire smoke from from Canada working their way down here. So there's just no OSHA regulation uh, on wildfire, but there are wild, you know, OSHA has come out and said, hey, we don't, we don't have a, a regulation on this right now, but we highly suggest you protect your workers, bring them in from outside. If the, if, you know, the, the weather alert says that, the, you know, the number is over a hundred or 200 in some cases, it got just crazy high in some areas of the country, the, you know, the, the wildfire air quality index, just, just crazy. So that's not necessarily heat, but it's definitely environmental conditions that are exacerbated by being out in the heat. So you can't breathe very well anyways with the, with the smoke out there. And under the conditions of the heat, it's like, <laughs> you know, people are just not, not doing well. You got to bring them inside or you got to give them water. You got to give them shade. Um, it, it's good. It's getting to the point. We're not at that point yet, but OSHA is really uh, kind of focusing in on it. Uh, Doug Parker spoke recently at, a, at an event uh, for safety professionals, and he just said, you know, this this heat advisory is going to soon become an actual OSHA regulation. So companies, you need to get on board. They, there's a whole list of things. Um, specific industries are being targeted right now for industry week audience in particular. Uh, you know, if they're involved in uh, any kind of activity 
it involves outdoor work or even indoor work where uh, you're not properly ventilating or, or air conditioning your facility, you need to pay really close attention to that because OSHA is hiring more inspectors, so they are going to be coming after you. Yeah, I've seen uh, there. There are very there. There still are unair conditioned uh, factories in the U.S. Fewer now oh, yeah. than there seem to have been in the past. Uh, the the machines themselves generate so much heat that it's been very hard to run an unair conditioned plant in some parts of the country. Uh, but they're still they still exist, and especially when you look at the the manufacturing growth in areas like Phoenix, where they are getting such huge uh, temperature swings. Uh, it's going to be more of an issue. It, it sounds like. Yeah. And I guess it's also the sustained level, the, the the really long periods of days of triple digits. Yeah, it's, it's hot in the summer. Uh, you, you extend that three or four more days without that kind of break. It, it's a, that much harder to deal with. So. Dave, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. And let's uh, shift over to Anna. Uh, Anna Smith recently covered a story for us on the uh, workforce side of things, looking at women in manufacturing and the experiences a lot of women uh, in leadership positions had. Uh, Anna, can you just give us some of the highlights of, of that piece, that study that uh, came out recently? Um, sure. So um, the report is titled, in her own words, Breaking the Glass Ceiling is Good for Business, and it's by the Manufacturers Alliance Foundation. Um, so they collected a lot of their data um, from surveys, uh, surveying both men and women, um, but they also did a lot of first-person interviews, I think more than two dozen first-person interviews. So the report has a lot of great, uh, not only just data and statistics, but quotes and thoughtful insights from uh, women in the C-suite uh, and just women leaders in manufacturing. So um, one of the biggest takeaways I had from it is 74% of manufacturers don't believe their company has a fair number of women in leadership roles compared to men. And I think that kind of is just like overall uh, encompassing the entire issue. There was a lot of talk about how there is this um, statistics that, that says prior to COVID, the World Economic Forum was saying women were going to reach parity with men globally in about 60 years. And after COVID, that has been pushed to more than 130 years. Um, so that is obviously just a huge, more than double the amount of years we were seeing before. And so a lot of uh, insights can be drawn from this. Um, breaking down the further issues, um, uh, another statistic when asked, do you believe the manufacturing industry has made significant progress in providing equal opportunities and pay to women in the past five years? Uh, only 38% of women responded yes. And I also think it's interesting to add that 82% of men responded yes. I think that gives a good um, indication of maybe how your position can really uh, impact your perspective. The report go on, goes on to outline um, some disadvantages, summarizes a bunch of disadvantages they have seen. Uh, in terms of advocacy and how women are trying to uh, move up in these organizations, break the glass ceiling, as the title suggests. Um, one statistic says 33% um, of women say they do not have uh, colleagues advocating for them, and 59% said they lack mentoring and resources for career growth. 
um, compared to only 19% of men. So there does seem to be some sort of uh, sort of divide in the perception of resources. Um, also, uh, one statistic that really stuck out to me was 52% um, of women disagreed with the statement, my company promotions are not biased based by gender or sex. And just 22% of men disagreed. So even any amount of disagreement for that sort of um, that sort of question is, I would say, unacceptable. But for more than half of these women in leadership to believe that company promotions are biased based by gender um, shows their sort of uh, their feelings and how they, even if some of the other higher ups don't see it that way, um, there has to be, when more than half of women are agreeing, there has to be some sort of taking a step back to look at your processes um, and maybe recognizing your own uh, biases. Um, another sort of- sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you off here, but this kind of ties into some other reporting that you and Laura and a few other people on our staff have done looking at the, the need for people in manufacturing right now. This has been identified by Manufacturers Alliance and some other groups as an under underserved market and you know, reaching out to women, recruiting women, especially into these leadership positions, could go a long way to closing the, the uh, massive number of jobs needed uh, through most uh, manufacturing operations right now. Yes, definitely. And I think there has been increasing uh, outreach uh, to women, even um, girls who maybe in the future want to pursue some sort of career in manufacturing, whether that's skilled trades or something um, in the STEM fields. Um, but even when we have women coming into these workplaces who maybe do have a lot of experience under their belt, they still feel as if they're not being uh, treated uh, equally which if we want more women to kind of fill these gaps, we need to make sure that we're obviously creating an inclusive environment where they feel uh, not only welcomed, but supported and, uh, ha and they have advocacy from their colleagues and things like that. Um, so one of the, what the survey, what the whole report kind of takes out of this is it all comes down to uh, the businesses or companies intentions. Um, there was one quote within the report that said, it's getting more women into manufacturing isn't just going to happen on its own. It's going to take work. It's going to take actual uh, care from the people who already are in manufacturing. Um, statistically, a lot of the uh, men who run uh, manufacturing um, and one of the um, sort of takeaways at the end also was there is this quote that says, um, probably the largest area of disagreement among the interviews we conducted surrounded the question of female identity. At the risk of massive oversimplification, it boiled down to don't be too masculine, don't be too feminine, just be human. If there was any doubt that women are still walking the tightrope, our interviews confirmed it. Which I think really sums up not only uh, women's experiences in manufacturing, but women's experiences in professional careers of any sort, sort of confused uh, messaging. So clearly there's a lot of work to be done on the 
side of actual tangible resources, but also on the sort of environment that uh, women are facing going into these careers. But it also ended on a positive note with many of the respondents talking about how they saw, they've been seeing more confidence and empowerment in uh, the younger women of today. So uh, I think we can really look forward to uh, the future as we uh, open up this field to uh, more women and other groups. And, and clearly the, the, the need is there because we have so many plants still reporting, not being able to find the people they need. So thank you so much, Anna. And lastly, last, last but not least, uh, Laura Poutre, who uh, covers a lot of leadership topics for us and uh, just did a fantastic profile recently of uh, an executive at U.S. Steel who really walked us through what that company is doing uh, to, to really tie sustainability into its uh, growth plans and its future. Uh, Laura, can you... Tell us a little bit about the, the executive and, and what you learned about U.S. Steel from that interview. Sure, yeah. Um, so I want to say first what U.S. Steel is doing, it's something that they, it's a good business model um, and it's something that they need to do around sustainability because uh, the company, the steel European steel companies are ahead of us as far as innovation around um, sustainable steel. And um, there are other US companies that are maybe where US steel is at or even a little bit ahead of them um, in their sustainability initiatives. So US steel, um, a few years ago, um, they had a um, chief strategy officer, uh, Rick Froyhoff, who um, had been in steel for most of his career and, um, you know, was the strategy officer at the company. And they combined his title with sustainability, chief sustainability officer, because they see sustainability and strategy now going forward as intertwined. Um, steel uh, produces about 8% of the emissions globally uh, green, of greenhouse gases. So making a dent in those emissions can make a big difference and it has to be done quickly. As, as you can see already, there are, you know, we are seeing the effects of climate change. Um, so their strategy is to, by 2030, reduce their emissions by 20%, and they are on target for that, reaching that perhaps ahead of schedule by 2030, um, and then by 2050, becoming a net zero company. So um, some of the ways that they are doing that is through a sustainable steel, uh, producing electric mini mills, um, so the blast furnace process produces a lot of, I mean, carbon emissions are part of that process. So, um, you know, recycling high quality steel using electricity can, can um, reduce emissions to a certain extent. The problem is that, uh, you know, there's limited supply of high quality scrap that can be used for recycling but um, about 25% of the world's steel could be produced that way. So they have a uh, mini mill in Big River, Arkansas uh, that they acquired, and then they are doubling its capacity next year. So um, that will 
that will go to some lengths to uh, reach their 20% goal. And um, they, uh, you know, have some big customers for this. Uh, you know, it is a good business model because like the auto companies, automakers want to reduce their uh, emissions as well. They want sustainable steel. So, you know, they've got some deals with GM and other big OEMs to uh, supply them with, uh, you know, sustainable steel for some of their vehicles. And there, there's some product uh, mix changes needed there as well, weren't there? You, you mentioned in the story that, for instance, uh, steels for electric vehicles are more specialized and have uh, different makeups. Right. Than, so even though that, that's not how the steel is generated, but the product itself is part of that sustainability picture. Yeah, they see an in in the market for, um, you know, there's a lot of attention given to um, battery cells for electric vehicles and they're building new plants. Um, so U.S. Steel is focusing on the electric motor that um, needs um, conduction, you know, to uh, power the electric vehicle and it needs specialty steel. So at that Big River plant, they are producing another type of sustainable steel that will be used in electric motors. That's great information. It's a lot of interesting things going on, a lot of different directions. Uh, thank you everyone for joining today. Thank you, Scott from Fleet Owner. Thank you, Dave from EHS Today and Laura and Anna from Industry Week. Appreciate your time today for everyone who's watching and please join us in two weeks for the next uh, production pulse from Industry Week. Have a great afternoon.